Now, have you sewn that 10,000 pounds into the lining of your socks? Yes. <laughs> then help me get this 100 pounds in fivers under my wig. Right. Uh, <clears throat> down in your right hand. Uh, Back a bit. Uh, right. My uh, uh, There. Good man. Any more left? Only this 50,000 pounds in loose silver. Oh. Now, where can I hide that? Uh, <laughs> I've got it. Moriarty, say ah. Uh, 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 <laughs> now, Moriarty, keep your mouth shut. I don't want... Army Pay Corps here, Chief Cashier speaking. <laughs> yes? What? Moriarty! <laughs> Never mind about that. Money, aren't you? We're, we're in the grit cart now. Remember the third armored thunderboxes who vanished in Burma ten years ago? Yes, 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 yes. Well, they're still alive. to Goompod. Now, I didn't have time this week to write a jokey intro, but I am wearing marmalade-coloured trousers, so I hope that will suffice. My guest this week is uh, comedian podcaster Ben Vandervelde, and Ben came along to talk about a goon show that he's very fond of, uh, the, the classic uh, from Series 6, The Fear of Wages, and we just got straight on in talking about, uh, well, have a listen. Major Bloodlock Search History is A, a great name for a lost goon show, and also horrifying. He would be known in the tabloids as Major Danger. <laughs> yes, he would. You don't look that much younger or older than me. You we look you look like you're you're a gentleman in your late thirties, early forties. Yeah? Um yeah, I mean you you, you spread the, the gap wide there. I'm I'm thirty-nine and clinging on very <laughs> powerfully to the three at the start of my age, because that is a <laughs> clock counting down. <laughs> okay. Well then how how did you how did you come to the goons then? Um entirely through my dad. Um my dad ah. my dad feels like the core market for the goons at the time. Um in that my dad is it was born in 1943. He is an extraordinarily beige man of the 1950s. Like, he could... My, my dad has the potential to have been super cool. He was 18 in 1961. He was into jazz. Yep. He um, could have been hanging out in all of these subversive clubs. But no, my dad is very, very straight down the line. Very, very small C conservative. And yet the one little bit of subversity that he allows himself is the goons. And my, he he used to do sort of silly goon voices at me when I was little. And two of my earliest memories are driving to my aunt and uncles in Liverpool. And my dad would put on either um, Count Basie and Duke Ellington big bands or the goon show and the only one i remember him putting on was the treasure of loch lomond and i remember 
basically me as a six, seven, eight-year-old insisting that that was the only one we listened to. And for years and years, I genuinely thought that was the only goon show. Okay. I... Yeah. I, I, I don't, know, don't know why. It just I could not conceive of there being anything other than this artefact. <laughs> okay. So you didn't play the other side of the tape? Well, no. I, I don't know whether it was because um, my mum could only tolerate half an hour of Goon Show or whether <laughs> um, I didn't ask for it or it just... It's yeah, it's really strange now looking back on it. But certainly, my my perception of it was that there was only one Goon right. show ever. And then at the age of about twelve or thirteen, like you say, I discovered the other side of the tape, which I think was Wings Over Dagenham, and I mean, uh, wasn't as good as the Treasure of Loch Lomond, but it blew my mind. Do you know what? I'm having a senior moment here because we only covered it literally weeks ago i can't remember i don't think it is i think the the other side of wings over dagenham was the rent collectors okay you're right that that was sides three and four of the two tape set so there's oh. another one that was on the other side oh. of the moment got I'm the really, rent collectors I'm... yeah death hill murder grange yes <laughs> i'm really struggling with the other side of treasure of Loch lomond anyway doesn't matter um but you know, it's, it's very it's a very common it's always always coming up that because uh, so many people, I'd say sort of majority of people that I've spoken to on this podcast so far have tended to be uh, people in their either, you know, late 30s into their 40s or early 50s. And they all mm-hmm. more or less tend to be gentlemen. No surprise there. Um, yeah. And they all tended to get into it. Not all, but a lot of them tended to get into the Goon Show through parents, particularly the dads in the car on their way somewhere know boring day trip out somewhere and, and they're listening to um the flea or the green slate story and and that's how they get into mm. it um so it's a very common common thing so did you did you carry this fondness for the goons on into you know adulthood 100 mm-hmm. percent. i i adored them there was what once the lid was open i was like well there's 107 of these let's let's hammer through them and I've, I, I don't know i probably listened to 30 40 50 um but I've never stopped loving them. And I mean, c- concurrently growing up, my favourite comedian was, and just about still is, Eddie Izzard. Okay. And obviously Eddie being, I mean, it, Eddie's referred to as the lost python. Eddie's also a lost goon. Yes. And I enjoy Monty Python, but it never it never held a place in the pantheon in, in the same way that the goons and Eddie did. As I got older, I, I discovered Dr. Strangelove. Wasn't a massive P- Pink Panther fan, and I discovered the Q series, mm. which again have some of the funniest bits of television ever made. Sure, yeah, 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 and yeah, it's it's kind of it's always been uh, in the shadow of Python, hasn't it? The Q series, even though it came along just before, and and it and it yeah. kind of it kind of influenced Python in many respects. It's never been, and to be fair, and I've said this many times on here, you know, a lot of Q has hasn't aged well. You know, if you watch mm. if you watch all of it, if you watch all the episodes that exist, um, there's some great there's some great laugh out loud sketches. But there's also, but you can say the same about Flying Circus. You know, a lot of that today hasn't aged well. Um, oh yeah, absolutely. With Python, it's I know what you're saying. It's there isn't necessarily the same warmth with Python that you get with with the goons. I feel um, people will disagree with me. I'm sure, but. There's there's almost a kind of like um, 
a technical you can, mm-hmm. you, can, you can see the workings with python whereas the goons just as like freeform jazz isn't it <laughs> it yeah it is i mean the God, there's so much to unpack there. The, I mean, the, the Pythons are, it's a cerebral exercise in absurdity. Yes. Um, and there's there's a brilliant comedian who I, I happen to go to school with um, and uh, I work with from ten, time to time, a guy called John Luke Roberts. And mm-hmm. uh, he has um, taken absurdity to the next level in his shows. And he is, what's interesting with him is that he's, He's unbelievably clever, and his way of dealing with the world is going, well, everything's absurd. I will be as absurd as possible. But there's there's more heart in his shows, and I think, actually, Luke has... He might disagree with me on this, but I think he's learned to put heart in his shows, whereas, actually, the Pythons rarely did. Pro- probably the most heart in anything they've done was Life of Brian. Yeah. And he, even that is still basically an at-one-remove piss-take. Whereas, yeah, with um, with 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 the goons, I mean, how you, you you cannot have a show with Harry Seacom as a star and it not have a huge dollop of humanity. Yes, totally. Yeah, and uh, right. again, I always say he is he is the glue that holds the show together because if it was just down, if it was if it was just the Spike and Peter show, God, it'd be unbearable. It would be. The, the 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 purpose of Harry is not just to be a fantastic performer and a funny guy and you know and and the center of the show, mm-hmm. but he's he's there to keep the peace. He's there to be the one that keeps everything calm, keeps everyone happy. Yeah, he's more robust than you would think. It's very easy to paint Harry Seacom as very lovely and happy-go-lucky and the nerk Neddy Seagoon, mm. but he doesn't take any shit. No. And it's a really well, important part of his character. Well, you couldn't have survived. He, he, you know, he. As soon as he was demobbed, he was. It didn't stop working. Pretty much, he was touring. He was at the Windmill Theatre, and he'd be touring provincial theatres, and he'd be getting some, some pretty short shrift from audiences a lot of the time. <laughs> and and you, you, you've got to develop some kahunas. And he, you know, he'd been in the war. He'd, he'd been in the army. He has this reputation now for being kindly Uncle Harry, who's on highway and who sings a lot. And uh, uh, that is among our generation. People younger than us don't remember him, of course. Not but, a clue, uh, no. But, um, but no, no, he was a very, very strong individual and um, vital in the, in the goon success, for sure. Well, it's funny, isn't it? I don't, like, it's almost like him and Spike are at the opposite ends of how you deal with being part of World War II. And Spike's is, this obviously isn't a conscious decision, but Spike's is, I will repeatedly lose my mind and become brittle. Mm. And Harry Seacombe is, I will compartmentalise that will and spread love for 60 years and make the world a better place. Um, I don't know how much action Sellers saw, but I guess Sellers is the third option of, I will shut myself off emotionally. Yeah, Sellers didn't really see much action. Um, he He was taking part in touring parties mainly. I think. Uh, yeah, my my favourite thing with Peter Sellers um, is when he's on the Muppet Show. Yeah, and the the opening sketch before the credits start is um, Kermit the Frog talking to him. And, and, and honestly, this is like a bit where the children on Sesame Street are able to open up to the puppets because they're so convincing and lifelike and empathetic. And Kermit goes, Mr. Sellers, Mr. Sellers, you're such a great world-renowned actor and such a chameleon. There's so many different parts you can play. And 
you know, we here at The Muppet Show wondering who is the real Peter Sellers. And Sellers looks straight into Kermit's ping pong ball eyes and goes, ah, Kermit, there is no real me. I had my real self surgically removed years ago. <laughs> and it's very revealing. Like, it's a good joke, but it's also the truth. Yeah, but he also, he he kind of recycled that line a number of times, and he oh, would and he would he? he would use that as a, an excuse for being a shocking human being a lot of the time. <laughs> and uh, and look, I love them all dearly. And what about Milligan in terms of his, you know, seeing Milligan on TV growing up? You must have you kind of avoided Spike on chat shows and things like that. Yeah, I do. You know what? I I don't think I saw much of him growing up on the telly. I so I remember at the British Comedy Awards there being the big thing when Spike called Prince Charles a groveling little bastard. I remember seeking that out and watching it and just being transfixed at what he did because my one of my favorite things watching Spike on the telly is him corpsing. Yes. Um cuz sometimes corpsing is a very selfish thing but he just he 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 knows he's been naughty and he can't <laughs> contain it. Yeah, he's, yeah. He's he's one of those people who um I'm so I'm very, very lucky to have met some remarkable performers being a stand up. And I always remember uh running a gig in uh Kilburn, which uh is in uh, northwest London and uh, if your listeners don't know, it's very, it's often very 30, Irish, very Irish part of London, isn't precisely, it? Precisely, yeah. County Kilburn, the 33rd county. <laughs> and we had um, been asked by Tommy Tiernan's agent if he could come and do 10 minutes. And the answer was obviously yes. And God, the, I mean, the, the capacity was doubled from whatever. And I met, it's the only time I've ever met him. He's an incredible man, a wonderful yeah. comic. Yeah. And it, honestly, it was sort of like a visit from the comedy Pope. But um, <laughs> chatting to him briefly, there was this mischief in his eyes. And it was honestly like talking to the Norse god Loki. Mm. And I think Spike had that similar thing about him. And it, it yeah. there are some people who are always on and that's not it with Spike and there's some people who always want to be a maverick or anti-authoritarian and that's not with him it's he he literally can't help himself and yeah I, I don't is is the story about the facts he sent the next day true no oh, what's that don't well apparently that. he sent a fax that was just one line saying uh well I suppose a knighthood's out of the question then. oh yeah yeah <laughs> probably not but you never what, what do they what do they say print the myth you know, always go with yes. always go with the, the the good story rather than the truth. Um, but he was he was yeah. friends with he'd been to the wedding he'd been to Charles's first wedding with um, what's her name Diana. You know he yeah. was he was. I mean, listen for 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 all for all of Charles's faults and for all that I would mostly like to see the royal family with heads on spikes on Westminster Bridge. <laughs> yeah. The impression that I get is that actually I don't think Charles will have been offended. I think Charles will have found it very funny. From what I understand, yeah, he didn't he didn't mind at all. He found it funny because he's a huge fan, huge fan, as we know. Well, exactly, yeah. Um, There's that wonderful video of him in full RAF gear, uh, looking up at the camera, being blue bottle. Yes, yeah, and he's not he's not he is not above a bit of subversive behaviour himself, Charles. As we know, you know, he's a, he's a 
what did Ben Alton used to call him? <laughs> a hippie. He used to call Charles a hippie, didn't he? Because he was into yeah. his environmental causes and he was a bit of a, you know, a bit of a radical, I suppose. So He is. Well, I enjoyed just this last week the fact that when our, our noble prime minister said he wouldn't be attending the COP27 climate talks, nor should the king. And so then Buckingham House released a statement going, we'll be having a pre-drinks reception at Buckingham Palace to which yes. the Prime Minister must attend. And I was like, that is some <laughs> sly politicking from you, Chuck. Here we go. I have a letter to read out here from His Royal Highness, the Prince of Wales. Do I um, kneel down for this? <laughs> <laughs> I'm in enough trouble already. I'm not going to say a word. And the Prince of Wales. Prince of Wales. I'm sorry I have to do this, for, but uh, I know it takes a, a lot of impact out of it, but here we go. As someone who grew up to the sounds of the goon show on the steam-driven wireless, I must confess that I've been a lifelong fan of the participants in the show, and particularly of Spike Milligan. Oh, the little grovelling bastard. We, so you wanted to come on and talk about the fear of wages. So yes. why this particular show? Um, I, I think part of it is that it has um, just a couple of my favourite set pieces on. There's, it's, it's a, a, a great goon show is one where it demonstrates Milligan's own circular logic. You know, the stuff that puts him up there with Lewis Carroll and Edward Lear and people like that. And there's a couple of moments of that. There's some incredible structural writing. Um, just the imagery of things like um, them sticking World War Three on the back of a truck and driving <laughs> it to 10 Downing Street. <laughs> yeah. There is, there's a, there's a bit of back and forth with Wallace Greenslade, who is another absolute hero, where, you, where normally, most of the time, Wallace Greenslade is playing it straight. But there's a bit where it, it's either Spike or Harry Seacombe tries, I think it's Harry Seacombe tries to read his bit, and Wallace Greenslade just comes in and is going, do you mind? Do you mind? <laughs> <laughs> and, oh yeah, and then another bit at the end where um, uh, Blue Bottle wants him to make an announcement that he wasn't deaded. And then Peter Sellers, just as Wallace Greenslade is saying the announcement, he is echoing him in yep. Blue Bottle's voice. Yep. It's, and it's, it's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. They often, uh, Blue Bottle would often do that. Um, yes. He, he, he just he's trying to put off Wallace, you know, because you imagine Wallace Greenslade. I don't know if you've ever seen Wallace Greenslade, picture of him. Um, uh, yeah. Very He's like sizable the controller, isn't he? Very solid man, yeah. Very sizable yes. gentleman, and um, with with these, you know, two little a little pair of spectacles perched on the end of his nose. You know, you can imagine him standing at the microphone with the script in his hand, reading the, you know, reading the lines, and then Sellers next to him trying to <laughs> try to put him off. You know, um, but Wallace Greenslade, unlike the um, the previous announcer that they had, which was Andrew Timothy, Wallace Greenslade mm -hmm. was was more than willing to throw himself into the fun and and to be. No, to be the butt of the joke a lot of the time. Yeah, well, then they, I mean, God, they, they all were him, Max Geldre, Ray Ellington. And uh, listen, some some of the jokes now, uh, particularly with Ray Ellington, you're like, oh, that's not okay. And mm -hmm. I think we'll talk more about that generally in a minute. But it, my, my, my grand theory of Milligan on this, which I'll talk about more later, is that unlike other comics then and modern who make... Uh, comments that are seen as uh, beyond the pale is everyone was up for uh, attack including himself including the Irish including the BBC including British politicians 
and almost always in the realm of the goon show, it was ridiculously silly caricature and playfulness. And, yes. Um, yes. There's a. I'm incredibly bored of the free speech cancel culture conversation around stand-up comedy. I think it's mostly bad faith bollocks from people on the right wing. But mm. someone has, uh, and, and the phrase punching down gets bandied about, and I don't think it's useful. But someone I read talked about mean-spiritedness, and I think that's really useful. Because I mm. think in The Goon Show, Spike was almost never mean-spirited. He was always an idiot eight-year-old having fun. Yeah, he was always he was always on the side of the little man, really. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. He hated authority. You know, he'd been yeah. in the, he'd been in the war. He'd railed against the officer class who would be giving him pointless jobs to do just to be seen to be making him do something. You know, and uh, you know he hated the BBC. Well, he says he hated the BBC hmm. all his life, but they kept him employed for most of his professional career you know um he just it was he always needed to have he always needed to have somebody to shout at or, or somebody to prick the pomposity of in i suppose yeah. in, in his eyes and this this episode is great for that because obviously i love the way and this is maybe how it doesn't translate perhaps to a to a younger audience a more modern audience but that um I love that he would use the template of biblical epics or classical epics or obviously wartime epics for a lot of the plots. But this one released in... Uh, 56. I mean, God, 1956. So 11 years on from the end of World War II is so subversive. And I, I, like, I, I love the fact that he's so cynical about everyone's out for a fast buck, which is a regular thing, particularly with Moriarty and Grit Pipe Thin. Um and that could they those could they could be very nasty characters, but they're very funny. But some of the lines about the government and the war are incredible for 1956. It's he, I would say his subversiveness is of a type with Tom Lehrer, who's another favourite of mine. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. you you listen you listen to Tom Lehrer and you're like, sh- surely he's he's recording this in the 70s, and no. He's, he's doing this to suburban America in the mid-50s yeah. mm-hmm. with some really ed- edgy and the best possible sense stuff. Yeah, like you say, this was 11 years after the, the end of the war and mm-hmm. there'd been, I don't, know, I, I don't know, I've not counted how many, but there's there's got to be a good dozen plus Goon Show episodes that, that have the war as their theme. Parodying it or, you know, it is the, 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 the setting of the show. And yeah, and they're they're freely making fun of generals, majors, you know, the war itself, soldiers, the, you know, everybody, everybody get like you say, everybody gets a kicking in some way, or everybody is is up for ridicule. And yet, you look now, what 60, 70 years later, where we are today, where people, I don't know, if, don't know if you agree, people seem a bit more precious about the war mm-hmm. than perhaps they were back in the fifties when it was still fresh in the mind people now there's there's enough of a distance where pe- people kind of look a bit sort of unkindly on on what would you call it satire about such what they would yeah. see as a serious subject well firstly it's because it's people who are in their 70s believing that they fought in world war ii which is the heart of the problem with the english condition um 
uh, and it's it's misremembering a war that they can't remember because they weren't there and all that blitz spirit nonsense and it's a lot more complicated than that and um, I think you know the goon show was 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 a form of catharsis for for a lot of people and uh, and there's two things I noticed one is the, the way in which Remembrance Day uh, currently being commemorated where I live by a bunch of ugly paper poppies on lampposts, which is, I'm sure, how our great-grandfathers will have wanted it to be remembered, by <laughs> lampposts being respectful. It's just this weird, we, we do the thing because we do the thing, we don't reflect on the meaning. And, and I notice, I make um, jokes about the war because my family are Jewish, and uh, sitting on my mum's side, my, my grandparents ran away from Hitler, um, because, <laughs> as I say on stage, running towards him would have been foolish and only encouraged him. <laughs> and... Um, there are certain jokes I will make where I've noticed, and this is actually in the past six, seven years, rather than when I first started making them ten years ago, audiences will get nervous about them. And I have to tell them off, I'm like, guys, these are these are happy jokes. These are jokes where the Nazis lose and the Jews run away, and now I'm here telling you them as the grandchild of, of, of refugees. And sometimes they'll get it, and sometimes they'll be like, oh, no, we, we can't as British people in 2022 joke about that. And I'm like, well... I don't want to be a dick about this, but you not laughing does make you complicit with fascism. So hop on board the funny train. <laughs> it's 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 a very odd phenomenon, very odd. Yeah, and social media hasn't helped, has it? No, no, it hasn't. It's uh, it's partially social media. It's partially twenty four hour rolling news. Yeah. It's it's the lack of long form discursive discussion, yeah. whether it be politics, entertainment, like you know. The death of shows like Parkinson, which you, you could argue have been, they've migrated to the Richard Herring podcast and the Adam Buxton podcast. Um, that form of interview for everyone from Spike and Peter Sellers to, I don't know, the Home Secretary of the Day or whoever. Mm. Um, well, I, I love watching old, uh, in America, the Dick Cavett show. Yeah, yeah. Tremendous. Yeah. Because that's what I want. I want my performers with a... A, a packet of cigarettes and a bottle of whiskey or, you know, a bottle of a, a packet of breath mints and a vegan smoothie chatting for an hour and then we can talk like grown-ups. Absolutely. I know what you mean. Intelligent conversation on TV is something that I do miss. Yeah, 100%. I suppose the closest you get now is, you know, occasionally on BBC4 there'll be some some interview hour-long interview or whatever with, with with some writer or whoever it may be but it's usually it's usually mark lawson conducting the interview and um yeah you know no, no offense mark but you know you hardly mm -hmm. uh who's the guy that did um civilization kenneth clark <laughs> yes or you get i was just thinking i'm just was looking at me on my computer of um greta thunberg was on the russell howard hour and and and, and russell gets some really interesting people on and they are good segments, but that's what it's a segment. It's eight minutes where you, you're just warming up. You're just getting going. Yeah. You, 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 you want someone on the telly to be able to, you know, do a Barry Cryer and either be an anecdote machine for 45 minutes <laughs> or, or have back and forth and really open up an issue and look at it from different uh, angles. And I, I think that would help with understanding. It would stop the, the polarization of, of, of topics and this notion of, free speech versus wokeism both of which are bollocks concepts that i would like to hope spike in his prime would either ignore or skewer yes 
I feel he would go, bollocks to you, I'm going to say what I'm going to say, but he wouldn't want to be a totem for the free speech libertarian. Oh, no, no, he wouldn't. Right, no. lot. No, because no, because again, that he he would recognise them as what they are as basically pillars of the establishment and the status quo in a very shabby disguise. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. If you'll excuse me, editorialising massively and also being correct. <laughs> it's okay. Um, okay, so I'm just going to give some background to the fair of wages, and then we can start talking right. about you know what we like about it. As we mentioned, it was it was broadcast in 1956. It was the sixth of March. 1956. Now, <clears throat> interestingly, I only I only realized when I was putting together the notes for this that the the plot, the the show begins with them uh, talking about uh, Colonel Nady Seagren of the Four Farmer Thunderboxes uh, in Burma, and they give mm -hmm. a and they give a date and they give the date sixth of March 1956. So it's the same date as the actual broadcast of the show, which I didn't realize. I thought mm. it was rather rather neat. Uh, and it was from uh, series six, episode twenty-five. So it's right at the fag end of the sixth series. So they'd, they'd almost finished the sixth series, and uh, written by Spike and Larry Stevens. It's uh, produced by Pat Dixon. And <clears throat> I always like to look at you know what's going on in the world, you know, as each show goes out, you know, what's happening in terms of you know other other films and music and, and news and whatnot there didn't seem to be there was no news on the 6th of march 1956 as far as i can see <laughs> <laughs> um uh for what it's you do know by the way that uh, sorry just you remind me you do know that that happened once i think in the 30s and it's such a goon show thing where yes literally the pips went and went um today in the world nothing <laughs> happened <laughs> Yes, was it? It was a. It was some day in September, like you say, one year. I'm not sure, but it was September. I seem to remember a September mm -hmm. day in 1937 or something. Yeah, there was there. Are, there is no news today. <laughs> please, please come back tomorrow, and we hope to have some news <laughs> for you then. Um, at the top of the hit parade was Dean Martin with "Memories Are Made of This," and uh, in the cinemas at the around the time that this came out, uh, there was a town called Alice and 1984. A big screen mm -hmm. version of 1984. And sorry, Glyn a, a town called Alice. Does that mean that the jam song is a pun? And I've never known that. Oh yeah. Oh oh. I could look down on you now, and I could say, oh yes. Have you never heard of a town <laughs> called Alice? Uh, it's, a, it's based on a book by Neville Shute, who's a, a I think he was Australian, or he might have been British, but he wrote, or he lived in Australia. Um, yeah, a town called Alice, and they, it was a book, and they made it into a film in the in '56. And yeah, so the the jam song is a pun. <laughs> huh. So you've taken away something so far from this, haven't you? Um, yeah, 100%. <laughs> um, and also, uh, for Goon Show fans, the, the week this went out on television, the idiot weekly price tuppence was halfway through its run on Associated Rediffusion, ITV, basically. And it was the forerunner of a show you might have heard about called a show called Fred. Yes. Okay. It was kind of the, the first stab at what would become a show called Fred. And it was directed by Richard Lester, who obviously went on to uh, direct lots of other films and things in the, in the 60s and the Beatles and whatnot. Yeah. I mean, the, the, it will come as no surprise, and I, I, I imagine lots of other guests like this, that I am, have always been a massive Beatles fan. The older I get, I am more, more tediously obsessive about them. Mm -hmm. But the... The, the line between the goons and the Beatles is just wonderful. And it's, um, 
uh, I was chatting to a mate about this the other day. Um, I used to subscribe to Q Magazine in the 90s when it was good. And um, <laughs> there was one brilliant issue uh, where they did, they regularly do 100 greatest singles or albums, and they did 100 greatest British albums. Mm-hmm. And the main <coughs> thesis of one of the articles, and it, might, it, was, it was either, oh, I'm trying to remember the name of the journalist. Uh, it might have been Stuart McConey. But he wrote about going, the, the, the heart of all British music, when you compare it to American music, is that it has this innate sense of taking the piss. And you go through the great British bands and they all have it. And you think of the Beatles, even at their most sincere, they do have that, that feeling to them. And it's what an mm-hmm. incredible thing for the greatest band of all time, inarguable, no questions, to be influenced by these three idiots. Yeah, well, we <coughs> we did a show on, on GoonPod a couple of months ago just called The Beatles and the Goons. And it was an hour and a half of me and uh, Stephen Cockroft from the Nothing Is Real podcast uh, talking about as many connections between the Beatles and the Goons or the individuals, so Beatles and Sellers, Beatles and Milligan, you know, mainly. Mm. Um, And uh, we came up with a lot. (laughs) So check that out if you get a chance. Well, and did you, I mean, because I've, I, so I've just listened to uh, an, another Beatles podcast, um, I Am The Egg Pod, where they yep. were talking about the recently released um, Revolver Super Deluxe set, sure. where there's the rev- the revelation about Yellow Submarine, which I think is probably the most self-consciously goonish song, mm-hmm. and the demo they found is of Lennon on his own singing, um, in the town where I was born. No one cared, no one cared. Mm. And it's not a children's song. It is this mournful, mournful song about the um, uncaring nature of Liverpool as a kid and the fact that they sort of drilled down into us. Lennon's dad was a sailor who went to sea and they re- it sort of recasts Yellow Submarine as this, the fantastical tales of the sea that Lennon wanted from his dad but never got. And yeah, have you ever heard his old man's Elf Lennon, wasn't it? Have you ever heard his that single that he put out in the in the sixties? Oh, gosh, no, I have not. So, from memory here, the story is is complicated. But he he left John and his mother, didn't he? Uh, or or he, mm-hmm, he was he not did. part of he was not part of John's life growing up. And then he resurfaced after the Beatles became famous. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Mm-hmm. Uh, and John kind of tolerated him for a bit, and then kind of kicked him into the of the long grass and anyway um long story short elf released a single you know back in the day back in the late 60s when anything with any vague beatles connection was going to make money and so there was this cash-in single that he released called i can't remember what it's called but it's just him talking rather than singing Good um Lord. yeah go on youtube when we finish and, and type in alf lennon and see if anything turns up i'll pick up my story well, I once left up. I sailed with the tides and lived on dreams. I've watched the sunrise over every ocean. That's my life, that's my love and my home. It started in Liverpool. Anyway, uh... So, uh, yeah, so Idiot Weekly was was, was, was still showing. Um, I always like to see if anyone famous was born or died on the day that these goon shows are, are broadcast. No one, well, people did die and people were born, but no, nobody of note. The only, <laughs> <laughs> Good evening. Welcome to the BBC News today. No one was born. No one was died. Nothing happened. Go away. 
the only the closest I could come to, and it's, and it's the day after. But, but Benny, you a big Breaking Bad fan? Uh, I, I'm very fond of it. Yes. Right. The day after the show went out, Brian Cranston was born. Tremendous. There you go. So that's so I'm going to I'm going I'm to include that just because you know, I'm, I'm a big fan. On the day that this was broadcast, and I don't know what the circumstances were at all, but Spike and Peter, so Milligan and Sellers, went to the Houses of Parliament for a visit. Okay. And they were they were shown around, they were conducted around the Houses of Parliament by an MP. I'm not sure if he was Labour or Conservative. Uh, there's a picture of him. He looks Conservative, called Marcus Lipton. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a photograph of Milligan, Sellers, and this MP. And I've got a picture. I'm just going to text you the picture. All right. Okay. Because I want you to have a look at that and tell me what you think. Um, right. Let's have a look. <laughs> oh, there's a lot happening here. I oh God, I don't know if he is Tory. I could see him being a bit of a cheeky Labourite. I mean, Possibly. so listeners, so um, Milligan is wearing a buttoned-up trench coat that makes him look weirdly a bit like Clouseau. Yeah. Um, uh, Peter Sellers is looking actually v- very, very dapper and uh, a plain dead-eyed look to camera. And I think the MP looks a little bit like an aging Groucho Marx. Well, I would have said, yeah, Groucho Marx crossed with Lionel, I was going to say Lionel Blair, uh, Lionel Jeffries, you know. Um, yes. But uh, isn't that a picture? Isn't that a picture? Oh, that's great. God, I'd like the more you look at um, Spike, actually, he does look like he's um, just off to make some very intense and meaningful uh, impressionist video art. <laughs> He looks very French, doesn't he? So, yeah, so on the, on the day that the fair wages went out, Milligan and Sellers were at the Houses of Parliament. And obviously the show does spoof politicians. It spoofs... Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It spoofs not, not not the Houses of Parliament in this one, but actually it, it's, I think it's the, the Cabinet Room that there's, they spoof. Yeah, there's... Well, there's, I mean, so there's the two bit, there's the, the wonderful joke uh, that's... It's, it, again, this is the sort of joke that should be taught in schools of... Um, Grip Pipe Thin uh, and Moriarty hiding various bits of money. And the way they set this up of going, oh, there's £50,000 in unused silver. Where can we put this? Moriarty, open up your mouth. And he shovels it in. <laughs> then the phone rings. Uh, Hello, uh, Army Finance Corps, Chief Kashia speaking, which is a wonderful reveal. And then the, the, the topper of just going, what? Moriarty! <laughs> Coins onto the ground. He's tremendous. Yeah, and, and the uh, FX guy had to be on his toes there, didn't he, to make sure that the, the sound of the money dropping. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah, I mean, that is... I, I love all those uh, recordings you can get in the BBC Radiophonic Workshop, but the, the the standard of work they're doing there, like you say, with the timing, is is tremendous. And then, yeah, the the Cabinet Office later... I listened I listened to the episode again last night, and I think there was a joke had been cut out because there's a... The the, the 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 wheedling high voice that they get for the um the Chancellor of the Exchequer uh, when he's told that they're go- they're going to have to pay Neddy thirty three million pounds in back pay and he goes oh dear 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 this will ruin my budget and I cl- remember someone going you don't be silly you've ruined it already um and I yes yeah well, you you are right so where did you listen do you, do you have do you, do you have this what do you have a cd do you have this online where did you listen to this 
So, well, I used to have it on uh, both tape and CD, but I listened to it on Spotify, and you're going to tell me that it's been it's been edited. Well, no, um, it was edited in nineteen in the nineteen sixties. The version that you've probably listened to, and by, and by that I oh. mean, again, I don't want to bore listeners who listen to this regularly and know the story inside out. But um, very quickly, uh, for overseas sales of the Goon Show, uh, uh, BBC transcription services would. Um, edit shows down, removing topical content, uh, racial content, not always, <laughs> and, mm, uh, no. and 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 anything a bit saucy that you know some foreign uh, radio stations might object to. So there was a series that they a series of um, goon shows that they put out called uh, which was part of a uh, part of a collection called Pick of the Goons in the, in the sixties. Okay, and these were mm-hmm. these had about three or four minutes trimmed, three three minutes generally trimmed. From the shows and a lot of that was music like the you know the end credits and things like that was was trimmed but often it would be whole sequences from these going shows and 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 but sometimes just even in some cases just single words were taken out you know and the original show as broadcast uh yeah you have uh the character which is known as jim spriggs who's playing the chancellor of the exchequer mm. and and he says oh this will this will ruin my budget and then and then just, in the original recording, which I've heard, Sellers says, as as Winston Churchill, you've already ruined it yourself. Okay. Yes. And and that is a uh, reference to the fact that just before the previous election, Rab Butler, who was uh, Chancellor of the Exchequer, had had bought in a, a budget that cut taxes and um, bought in some new benefits, and then the the Tories got back into power were re-elected they actually realized imagine this right they realized that the budget was unworkable and and they had to actually go back on their word and say actually we're not going to make these tax cuts imagine that Ima- imagine that happening i um <laughs> but i i i love that sort of content where and it, I, it's not in every uh, show that i like but with the goon show you're like okay this is a joke it's almost like in shakespeare where you go well this was clearly hilarious in 1615 but um, now I, I, I have no knowledge of the current politics, but I, I love that texture it gives the shows. Yes, yeah, absolutely. So obviously the, the fact it was topical, they cut that line, just that line. Um, they let it go out as, you know, in the original broadcast, they let it go out. But I guess, you know, uh, wiser heads prevailed or maybe unwiser heads prevailed when they came, yeah. to, when they came to editing. <laughs> um, just, just while we're on transcription services, um, I mentioned about the transcription services uh, would trim the shows. They also, in some cases, in very rare occasions, would would improve the shows. Okay. What do you mean, mm-hmm. you're asking? Okay. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, a couple of months ago, I was talking to um, a, a, a very interesting gentleman called Ted Kendall. And Ted Kendall well he's a legend in terms of audio restoration he's he's one of the top tier uh audio restoration people in probably in the world um and not just sort of radio audio that he would restore but also you know, old jazz recordings and jazz records and things like that he he he's he's very very well respected and uh and he back in the 90s uh began in the late 80s into the 90s into the 2000s he restored as best as as possible he restored 
as many goon shows as he could to their original length. So he reinstated all the bits that had been cut out by transcription right. services. He cleaned them up. He Peter Jacksoned the living daylights out of them. Yeah, Peter Jackson, exactly. Yeah, he he basically made because um, there were so many goon show recordings that for the longest time were muddy sounding and was mm. short because they had bits missing and Ted just came along and he's just, it's just like, he's just clean them up and, and give them, given them a fresh coat of paint really. <laughs> and he, he and I had a conversation a couple of months ago, which um, I haven't actually put out for, for, for various reasons. Um, it may be the carnival of light of Goompod that recording with Ted. It may, <laughs> it may never see the light of day. However, he was telling me about instances where a goon show gag was partly derailed by a technical deficiency. Right. Okay. So for that gag to work properly, you want those middle two inserts to be the same because the Japanese is saying, I pay you back at rate of, and blood not saying Sigun, how much is Okay. Now, on the original transmission, that was basically a record continuously playing, and they were just opening the fader where the insert was required. So it was a fairly simple snip job just to make those two the same. Now, I wasn't the first to do that. Transcription did that, actually, um, for, for, for the, because uh, that only came out as Pick of the Goons, I think. Fear of Wage didn't come out as TS1. Um, so, so they did that. Fine. I didn't hesitate to follow. Tell me how much we owe. Sigun, play him back his account. Right, sir. And sixpence halfpenny. <laughs> please, believe, please. I promise I pay you back at the rate of a week. <laughs> Sigun, how much is in English money? It's about. <laughs> sir. Oh, right. So in the original broadcast, it didn't. It yeah, didn't really it, it didn't sound right. It sounded like two different bits of music, and it shouldn't. It should have sounded like the same bit of music every time. Uh, if, if you know it's, what I mean, that's that's the sort of joke. And I, I've I have now learned both with uh, friends and and my wife that it is a, a a fruitless and dangerous path to go. You know that piece of culture that I love and adore that that forms one of the key buttresses of my personality well here it is by thunder you'd better like it or we're in trouble mm -hmm. and uh, i mean i i remember because my going all the way back to my family we i think every family has sort of like a cultural canon of which you must be a part of and for my my family it's like it's mel brooks and the goon show and if you're not into that then you may as well <laughs> just you know be, be divorced from the entire family with little sprinklings of victoria wood as well oh yes and yes <laughs> i remember showing my wife uh, blazing saddles which I obviously adore yep. and she she has a habit of falling asleep in movies anyway but she she fell asleep after 20 mirthless minutes and I thought I'm going to turn this off and never mention it again and <laughs> we have never listened to the goon show together because um I feel like it's going to be like if I'm listening to I don't know some some particularly odd experimental prog, and she's going to be what is, what is that I'm like it's only, <laughs> only, only one of the reasons that I exist <laughs> um, and yeah, but but those those jokes where it's how much do I owe you? Here's some music. What's that in English money? Some traditional English music is so brilliant. <laughs> mm. It's such a leap of the imagination. But I know that if you if if you're not of a mind of it, it you might find it utterly baffling and unfunny. Yeah, uh, 
just on Blazing Saddles, I've got a friend who we, we, very often we'll just say to each other, well, that's the end of this suit. <laughs> it's the bit, the, I mean, this is the joy of comedy. My my, my taste for comedy and, and watching is, is just very clever people being very silly indeed. My, my favourite bit of Blazing Saddles that always gets me and my brother is uh, when... Hedy Lamar and uh, Mel Brooks as governor are having an argument and at some point just look at each other in the eyes and make a noise at each other. <laughs> it is, it's indescribable. And the goon show is full of that where you can't, <laughs> not to undermine the premise of your podcast, Tyler, but trying to unpick what's happening as a fool's game, it, Spike just plugs into this incredible seam of... Funniness. Spike would probably despise someone like me for trying to. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. For trying to think too hard about it. Um, I I, I think he'd. I'd like to think he'd uh, (coughs) put his arm around me and call me sister. You know, but I'm sure that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, By the way, just on Spike, this show, Fair of Wages, has the distinction of being Spike Milligan's favourite ever goon show. Really? Yeah. Oh, I'm very happy with that. Uh, why? Why is that? Why did he love so much about it? I'm not. Well, I'm not. I'm not quite sure. Um, he's he's gone on record and said this is his favourite episode of the Goon Show ever, and it was actually um, the script for this is there's a, there was a book that came out 20 years ago called The Essential Spike Milligan, which is just like just a collection of poems and uh, quotations and. Uh, uh, sequences from some of his no- novels like Pacoon and, you know, the, the war memoirs mm-hmm. and just, just writings and letters and just little, just a collection of spiked writings. And there's also the script for the Pharaoh wages in there. And, um, right. and so, yeah, so this is his favorite. So, and it's, it is one of my all time favorites, although it's, it's weird this one because, because as you, you said earlier about the treasure of Loch Lomond and uh, the rent collectors uh you know, they were released on BBC albums, those shows, back in the mm. 70s into the mid-80s. There was about 11 or 12 BBC LPs uh, that came out, obviously two shows per album. And The Fair of Wages was never one of those. Whereas I would have thought this would be, should be up there. This should have been one of the first ones that was put out as a commercial release. But it, it, it kind of got... Not ignored, but it didn't really come out as a, you know, on commercial release until the 90s um, as part of those two, you know, two CD or two cassette BBC collections. It, it was kind of, it's it was never really recognised as being that big a show up until, I think, around the time of um, the 50th anniversary of the Goon Show when there was a, a special anniversary show called Goon's Night on BBC Radio 2. Um, that was in May 2001, and Spike was on that, and, and that's that. That's where Spike mentioned that the Pharaoh Wages was his favourite show, and they actually played the the Ted Kendall restored, full restored, fully restored version of the Pharaoh Wages at that point, and it's it's become a huge fan favourite ever since then. I wonder with it because it's the um, cause it is obviously based on a true fact. I mean that the the there's the guy who was. Well, I I don't know whether he'd been discovered yet, but obviously there was there was that Japanese soldier mm. in I think the the Burmese jungle who didn't surrender until the seventies. Seventy four, wasn't it? Something like that. 74? Yeah, I, I yeah. think that's right. And it's you know that's one of those um, 
life doesn't give you punchlines, but it certainly gives you interesting setups. And that's one of those true facts of life that's inherently goonish and inherently absurd. So Isn't I, it? <laughs> yeah. And I, I think I think that helps. And again, there's just there's two particular set pieces in amongst all the funny stuff we've spoken about so far. And and yeah, and the and the, the cash register one is is already one of them. But the the bit about um, the, the the MacGuffin of the sake and the nitroglycerin, and when Eccles appears, and um, it's very simple. It's almost like you know a a, a three chord song of a joke where Neddy Seagoon says, um, "You see that lorry over there, Eccles? Yes. Drive it back to London carefully." <laughs> and then there's the this, uh, the immediate sound effect of it driving off and an explosion and then Eccles very quietly going good job I wasn't in it and the audience explodes I ironically and um, <laughs> it's such a simple piece of joke writing but it's done perfectly but the annoying pedant in me is annoyed that presumably mm-hmm. even even though he actually comes back to scream about it Blue Bottle was blown up in that explosion. I entirely agree. I entirely agree. <laughs> <laughs> then he comes back at the end to say, I didn't get deaded this week. Well, yes, you did. <laughs> yeah, you did. You absolutely did, mate. Yeah, no, I, that, that, yeah, that does. Okay, that, that, that makes it a nine and a half from the judges rather than a All ten. Right. Okay. <laughs> and, uh, and, the, and the other bit, that's because there's a classic thing that I think is that Dennis Norden talks about the... Um, uh, I've got the time written down on this piece of paper and that that is, again, a piece of joke writing that should be taught in comedy classes, philosophy classes, English classes. But I, I, I think Eccles' appearance on here when he turns up on a vinyl record, where it's, it's something like, you can't explain it to people. It's, it's, it's nonsense, but it's brilliant. Shut up, Seagoon. And here's a record of me saying it. Shut up, Seagoon. Shut up, Seagoon. Shut up, the famous Eccles. Shut up, the famous Eccles. Shut up. Shut up. Get off this record at once. Oh, hello. <laughs> Private Eccles, just the man. You see that lorry that everybody's keeping clear of? Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Good, 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 good. Yeah. Well... Drive it back to London. Gently. <laughs> okay. Okay. Good boy. A good job I wasn't on it. <laughs> big fan of goon show lines which die on their ass and by that i mean that don't get that don't get an audience reaction but i think are great and they're often Uh just little throwaway lines that you that you only think about afterwards like right at the end of the show uh, seagoon turns up at number 10 frith street which for some reason is standing in for downing street and moriarty answers the door to him and 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 seagoon introduces himself seagoon the name seagoon oh it can't be you're a lying charlatan. Rubbish. I'm a truthful charlatan. Yeah. 
And I just think, but the audience, there's nothing from the audience. It's, it's just tumbleweed. Beautiful oh, little cool. line. Yeah, well, and that's the advantage of them being, a, you know, a threesome or a foursome and the band and the musicians. The, as You know, as a stand-up comedian, obviously you train yourself to go, well, that happened, we move on, we don't comment on it. Yep. But there's there's no sense of that there. They're just like, we're having such a great time. Spike's bashing these out at a ridiculous rate. We we, we go up, we do it. What gets laughs, gets laughs. What doesn't, doesn't, and on we go. Um, You mentioned Spike looking a little bit like Clouseau in that mm-hmm. picture with the MP. This this is a <laughs> this is a segue. Um, have you ever seen the Henri Georges Clouseau film, The Wages of Fear? I have not seen that. No. Okay. I was I was I was aware that the the, the film type that the show title was a was a was a pun on the film. I did I did know that. Yeah, it's a it's a I love the film. It's a 1953. It's it's a French film, but it's set in some indeterminate, I think South American country, where mm-hmm. there's just poverty. Just every, there's just so much poverty. There's no no one's got jobs, and there's these Europeans who we believe we never get the backstory, but we believe that that each of them are on the run, have have run away from something, from some commitment, or they're on the run from the law or something. You know what I mean? So they're pitched mm-hmm. up in this. And they and they they they're desperate to get some work. They're desperate for money, and they accept this this job to drive these lorries full of nitroglycerine across the country from one side of the country to the other to um, help try to put out this this oil field oh, fire. So the nitroglycerine is in the original movie. Yes, and the the film is about. And I only watched it again. I've watched it a few times. I watched it again a couple of weeks ago. It's about two and a half hours long. Okay, and it's mm-hmm. black and white. It's nineteen fifty three. But I love that sort of thing. Okay, the first hour of the film, nothing much happens, right? And then you get this big explosion on this oil field, and the plot kicks in. And the plot, as I say, they have to they have to get this nitroglycerine across treacherous, rocky you know, unstable ground, a lot of, you know, it's just, it's like it's suicide mission. You've got to get these lorries, Mm -hmm. but you've got to drive them so slowly because if the nitro gets shaken too much, it's just going to blow basically. So Mm -hmm. that, that is the plot of the film. And it's about these guys, these disparate characters uh, in these lorries driving this nitro glycerin. And um, it's fantastic if you ever get a chance to watch it. Do you know what it makes me think? And this is obviously an incredibly grand thing to say, too grand, but Spike is borrowing plot lines, which he can use as a structure for to uh, show off his great facility with language, much in the same way that, you know, William Shakespeare would. Yeah, yeah. It's exactly the same thing you do, because it's not, it's not about the plots. It's it's satisfying when it all ties up at the end because again, you know, endings of any story, particularly a comedy story, are the hardest bits to write. And this one does have quite a satisfying ending. Um, but it's really that the plots are vehicles for silliness. Yeah. So Spike's obviously gone to see the Wages of Fear because you you wouldn't have mm. seen it on TV back in those days. He's gone to see yeah. the Wages of Fear in 1953 or 54. And he's had it in the back of his mind. Oh, that's quite an interesting plot. Hmm. I wonder if ever I could, you know, might use that in a future show. And he's thought, okay, he's come up with maybe he's come up with the idea of the 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 British fighting the Japanese 11, 12 years after the end of the war. And he's thought, now what could I tie that in with? And he's he's brought together these two mm. ideas and mixed them together. Um, and obviously, you know, the, the jokey title, the, the fear of wages, which is another dig at the British working man. Fair wages. Yeah, 
Well, and the way that it's uh, it, it's it's announced at the start by William, yes, um, that gr- that great Cockney voice, yes. And it's funny those because you've got. I love the fact that with the Goontra, you've got the A list and the B list cast. That there's Moriarty and Grip Pipe Thin and Eccles and and Neddy and Blue Bottle, but all these other little voices, Throat and William and um, p- people like that, who get, they they just get tiny cameos and they don't get a round of applause um, when they appear like Blue Bottle does, but they have some of the best lines sometimes. Oh yeah, you, Spike loves having those characters up his sleeve. To, to fill in when he needs someone to fill in or just a random voice here or there, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's got, do you know, it's got, uh, they, they, I feel like they exist in the same sort of universe as the Muppet Show, where mm. um, you, it, I, I am one of the people who holds uh, an opinion that the Muppet Christmas Carol is genuinely one of the top 10 movies of all time. And one of the things that makes it perfect is the casting of the Muppets is so on point. And it's a really mm-hmm. good fun game to go, right, let's cast Muppet Die Hard or Muppet It's a Wonderful Life. or and you, you can do it. You could do that with the Goon Show. If I said, right, we're going to do Goon Show Die Hard, <laughs> then we know that Hercules Grip Pipe Thin is going to be Hans Gruber. We know that Nettie Seagoon is going to be John McClane and so on and so <laughs> forth. It's well, you know, that, you know that the Goons did a version of A Christmas Carol. Did they? Yeah, in it was the the last series in nineteen was well, ninety December fifty nine, and mm-hmm. um, Seagoon plays Scratchit, Ned Scratchit, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, Crun Henry Crun plays uh, Scrooge. Just reminds uh, Minnie Bannister and Henry Crun always used to have me in fits of giggles as a kid. And um, there's another another comedian called Pierre Novelli, who's a very, very funny man and a huge Goon Show fan. <laughs> and I remember him saying to me <laughs> that uh, whenever he has to read any any stories about UKIP, he can't help but read the UKIP statement in the voice of Henry Crun and Minnie Bannister. <laughs> Just every UKIP manifesto is like, we'll all be murdered in our beds. Yes. Things that the Goon Show taught me, I've got written mm-hmm. down here on my notes. Uh, Saki. I'd never heard of Saki. <laughs> before mm. before this um have you ever tried sake um i have not what's, for me is now what's it like uh, um uh what's the word i'm looking for not harsh um um it's one of those drinks when you drink it it's a bit like drinking electricity um, I was going to say uh, uh, acrylic paint or something, but no. Yeah, yeah, it's right. very astringent okay. um, as, as a taste. Really, really, really not for me. So they, yeah, so so obviously sake plays a key is a, is a key plot point in this show because they have this mm. this potent Japanese rice wine which gets uh, confused with nitroglycerin and and is obviously the preserve of the Japanese characters in this show. Now then, now then, when I said about the the show that you heard, the episode you heard, I'm sure was well. It is the the edited version, so you won't have heard the the references to Yellow Devils or Japanese Devils that I heard. Ah, <laughs> uh, no, I do remember that. Well, obviously, it's it's one of those things that um, they do refer to them as Japs, yep. which is less than ideal. And then there's the voices as well, which mm. is less than ideal. Um, let's 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 have this conversation then. I um, 
like as a sort of base assumption, yes, it was a different time and all that sort of jazz. Some of it is unacceptable. Some of it, I think, is of its time slash affectionate in that um, it's, I don't think, say, the voices are of a piece of Mickey Rooney in... Breakfast at Tiffany's. Tiffany's, which yeah. is horrendous <laughs> because the best way I can explain it is I... So I remember going to see Omid Jalili um, do a warm-up for the Ember Fringe and he, he he's an incredible mimic and he basically did all the accents in the way that a musician would go through his scales and he possibly has a bit more license because he's a person of colour to do uh, accents from the Indian subcontinent or Africa. I also saw Andrew Maxwell do this. Andrew's a white Irish comic and Andrew did um, a, Niger- a Nigerian accent um, and the thing is, it was accurate. Certainly to my ear. Now, I'm sure there might be Nigerian people going, yeah, well, was he Igbo or Yoruba? Um, but it it, it felt appropriate to the joke and it didn't feel like it was belittling. Now, there, there is a bit of belittling in some of the Goon Show stuff, but if you listen to his accents of they have North African characters and Far Eastern characters and Indian characters, I don't think these characters are necessarily always as subservient as in other things. I think that they often get some decent jokes. They sometimes get the better of the goons and the main goon characters are just as selfish and stupid and grasping and acquisitive for money and power as anyone else. Yeah. Spike, to me, it feels like he's going, aren't all of humanity idiots? Yes, he is. There are times when he doesn't. Like, there's uh, the famous sitcom Curry and Chips, where he browns up, and that's horribly racist. And then there's difficult ones. Like, one of my favourite sketches on Q is him getting um, Parkinson in to interview him in the naffy. And Spike turns up, stripped to the waist, wearing a vest, um, and he's wearing this pair of inflatable uh, breasts, which he slowly inflates as the interview goes on. And it's hilarious. (laughs) And then there's a bit, one guy comes in, again, wearing a tutu and military wear and makeup and flirts with Parky and leaves, and it's pantomime dame stuff. And then a guy comes in wearing, I think, a kilt, a Scottish regimental uh, hat and um, minstrel face. Mm. And it's the 70s, so the minstrels weren't controversial. But Mm. obviously it's shocking. And obviously, yes, Spike has been racist. But watching that to me, it feels like he's not going, oh, ho, ho, let's laugh at black people. It feels like he's going, here's another ridiculous piece of cultural symbology that i'm adding to this absurd Mm. situation yeah and i don't know maybe i'm overanalyzing it to forgive one of my heroes for his racism but to me that's where it feels where like where a lot of the stuff comes from yeah and he i mean absolutely he wouldn't he he wouldn't recognize it as racism of course himself you know and it's and it's and it's you know, you get like there's the, there's the lovely joke in this where he's playing around with identity, where there's Sergeant Goldberg who has an Irish accent. Yes, which is a lo- like that's that feels like subconsciously he's going, yeah, everything's fair game and not in a punching down way, but the notion of identities and accents and cultural markers they're there to be played with, like yep. the and and also so I, you know I have a great love of the Indian accent. Uh, there's great Indian comics, um, Anuvab Pal, uh, Aditi Mittal, and part of the thing that makes them funny is the, the 
the rhythm of Indian spoken English lends itself to a particular form of humour in the way American English or Australian English or Canadian English. Mm. There's a lovely thing in the novel Life of Pi about oh, yeah. um, mm-hmm. the effect of English public school education in India has had on Indian vocabulary where they will use a more complex word where a simple one would do. Like and, um, like so- esteemed sir. That sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. So Anuvab will. I'm pals. I'm, I'm mates with him, and he'll send me emails going, uh, "Sir," and I'm like, "I'm, I'm your friend." <laughs> <laughs> like, um, it, the example in Life of Pi, he talks about um, uh, being confused by a uh, at a ticket office in the train station. He goes, "Sir, you have bamboozled me." <laughs> now, it's a great word in an Indian accent. The word bamboozle is an unmitigated delight. <laughs> uh, but it would be frowned upon by me as a white person doing it. And I would mean it with no malice. I love the sound of it. And it feels like um, it does feel like Spike is d- delighting in the nonsense gobbledygook. Yes. Of voices sometimes. I, I, I really believe, And sometimes he gets it wrong. And sometimes it's horribly outdated and racist, but it's it it does. I think the thing with using things like this, it has to feel earned. Like obviously in Blazing Saddles, um, I, you know, which again it is playing with identity. You have Yiddish Native Americans, and it's the seventies. Liberal use of the N word, but almost always comically valid. And and Richard Pryor, but, Richard Pryor was involved with the script of that, wasn't yeah. he? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and, and and you know and what I love is Rich, and obviously the, the 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 racial dynamics are different, but Richard Pryor doing his white person's voice is so funny, and it's obviously the nature of oppression means you can't just go same joke different foot because it's it's more complex than that. But then last night when I was listening on Spotify, it went after the end of the episode, it took me on the shuffle play, and there was an old um, Rowan Atkinson routine of him being a country and western singer from the deep south called something like um uh darwin n word hater jones and there was something about um rowan atkinson dropping the n word in that that i was like i get the joke you're making but it's you're having your cake and eating it (laughs) right yeah i'm not yeah it's i don't know whether it's just because it's a british guy doing it or the joke's not strong enough but that jarred in the way that certainly Blazing Saddles doesn't jar, and and most of the jokes in the Goon Show don't for me jar. No, no, and both and Spike obviously was born in India. Sellers served in Burma during the war. Mm. Um, he was there a short period, but he was there, and he, you know, he they met these people, they knew these people, these Indian people, these, these characters. Yeah, um, not not Japanese, but you know, um, there you go. Uh, yeah, I mean, it it doesn't mean they. I mean. I'd be really interested to speak to, um, but, but both a person of color who's never listened to the Goon Show and hears it and sees what they think, and people of color who are fans of the Goon Show and see what they think. I mean, the, the nearest I've got is, you know, I'm Jewish. There are Jewish characters in the Goon Show, and I think they're hilarious. I think they're they're the right kind of caricature. <laughs> well, Sellers Sellers was Jewish, of course. Yes, I mean that does that does help. Yeah. <laughs> um, this is a question I do ask my guests when we're talking about the goon shows okay when you listen to them or when you listen to them when you were younger when you listen to them now do you skip the the ray and the max numbers absolutely not they are an essential part of the experience yeah um they 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 really really are um i 
I, I mean, the, the, I love it's it's such of its time that there is a Dutch harmonica player is already feels like a lost goon show, doesn't it? The <laughs> tales of the Dutch harmonica player. Um, but it's I mean, listen, I, I grew up listening to big bad music because of my dad, but they're so well suited to the show. Like there's a it's easy to make the harmonica a dirge like Bob Dylan does, much as I love him. But this honestly, this is harmonica playing that wouldn't. If you told me that was Stevie Wonder, I'd believe you. It's yeah. it's a joyous sound. Yeah. And the choices of music that Ray Ellington plays. I, again, as a kid, I was like, so this is Duke Ellington's brother, right? Yeah. I just couldn't get out of my head. But they're they're so fun. He's it's he's got a real sort of Sammy Davis Junior um, thing about him where he's not just a singer; he's a performer. He he is, and you won't have heard this because you listened mm-hmm. to the edited version, but they they actually, for the version that you heard of The Fear of Wages, mm-hmm. they took out a Ray Ellington number from a previous show and inserted it into this show. Yeah, well, because I, I was I was having a read of this. It was um, the, they, they replaced it with Love Me or Leave Me, which was pretty good, but it was originally one that I have heard on another broadcast of um, uh, Pink Champagne. Pink Champagne, yeah, which, which, is, a, which is joyous. It yeah. Really is. And um, he, because he, 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 he corpses as well, doesn't he? And you want, and this, this is what I love about the Goon Show very often is when there's a musical number, very often you will hear the audience laughing at something that we can't see. So, yes. so, so Max or Ray is doing their thing, and you, you just imagine that behind them on the stage, Milligan has dropped his trousers or something, <laughs> you know, done something like that. Um, and when you listen to the playouts of the shows, you know, when the, the, the end credits and then there's the playout music, very often yeah. you hear, you hear members of the band whooping and hollering and you think, what are they, is, is Sellers doing something or is Milligan doing something, you know, um, yeah. or they're just, they're just a, having fun. There's a, well, and fun is it. I mean, I've long held the theory that we love whatever form of entertainment you're watching whether it's sport or dance or comedy or music we love watching people have fun it's yeah. why ultimately Lionel Messi is more beloved than Cristiano Ronaldo because Cristiano Ronaldo as brilliant a footballer as he is he is self-serving it's all about him and his legacy whereas Lionel Messi is the six-year-old in us slaloming around the football pitch and it's 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 the same here and it's the thing with all sketch groups and bands, they're 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 a group, they're a gang. That this lot with a crazy gang, mm. and they're letting you in on their fun. It's a beautiful feeling. Yeah, and in Pink Champagne, Ray is is keeping himself together more or less, but he is almost corpsing, and he's and there's there's just just sounds like there's just there's just all hell is broken loose. Or there's just yeah. Pop, bubble, 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 bubble went the pink champagne. Everything was safe and safe Till the waiter pulled the cook At the store camp up Bubble, 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 bubble Went the pink champagne He began to pour, I began to soar More and more and more Oh, that pink, pink feeling As I went really And I wonder why they removed that When they put it out for Pick of the Goons I don't understand why it was removed And another song substituted And it I wondered, was are there any sort of lyrics in it that could be offensive to overseas listeners? No, I listened to it. There's no, there's nothing that could be. So I don't know why it was taken out. I'd love to know the, the reasoning behind it. Yeah, I don't think. So. Listen, sometimes editors have poor taste. They don't. They, they do. So, 
some some people want to take the live set, set, uh, effect out. They want to just have it just the jokes. Well, because also because I remember my dad. My dad got me a few years ago as a present. Um, the shows on CD, and they had taken the music out to save oh, space yeah. and fit an extra show on. And and honestly, it's it's a different experience. Yes, it sure, is. The, the jokes are good, but you really lose something. It is the difference between. Oh, I'm trying to think of a suitable example, but the the, be, the best I can do this. Um, I grew up listening to a lot of Bob Marley and the Wailers, and mm-hmm. the um. No Woman, No Cry, mm. the version everyone knows, is a live version. And you listen to the studio version on Concrete Jungle, and it's a great song, but it's absolutely nothing compared to the live version. Right. Yeah. It's, yeah, they, they breathe they breathe life into it, and they, get, they give a rhythm to the whole show. Yes. A um, couple of other references in this show that <clears throat> I certainly didn't understand when I first heard it when I was, you know, a teenager. And I've subsequently found out a little bit more. There's a, there's a reference to East Lynn right at mm-hmm. the beginning. Um, yes. Which was a, um, which was a famously pretty terrible stage play, which was based on a, one of those uh, Victorian sensation novels of the mm-hmm. 1860s. And there's this much quoted line from the play gone and never called me mother, which has yes. kind of entered the, the lexicon, hasn't it? Or it did then. I don't know if it, people probably don't say that now, but it, it was a famous line, and I don't quite know why. Yeah, well, it's funny. My my um, favorite one, one of my favorite goon show jokes, which again I try to explain to my friends, but it requires too much um, former knowledge, is in it might be in Napoleon's piano actually, where Eccles is there singing to himself, going, "I talk to the trees, that's why they put me away," <laughs> and. I didn't know that that was based on a song when I first heard it, but I already found it hilarious. And then my dad played me the original song, and I was like, "This is genius." <laughs> but trying to explain that to someone, and they, you know, you see, you see their eyes glaze over. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, another, another, because in every Goon show, there'd always be some repeated reference to something, mm-hmm. often a cultural reference. And there's a there's a repeated reference or use of the phrase. There's a little yellow idol. Yeah, which I didn't understand at all when I first heard it, and and I still don't really, <laughs> um, other than to know that it, it's from uh, a poem called "The Green Eye of the Little Yellow God" by Milton Hayes, and was very yeah. popular. Mm. I have a weird memory of possibly having to do that poem in a talent show as a six-year-old. Right, it's okay. something mad like that. Weirdly, when I first listened to this. Um, show as again as a, as a 12 or 13 year old i got that reference oh okay yeah i have yeah. now forgotten it but at the time through some strange alignment of the cultural planets that was one where i was like yes well everyone knows the uh <laughs> little golden idol <laughs> reference surely but obviously the audience appreciated it but 14 15 year old me was just kind of nonplussed by it when i first heard it being used as a punchline and Bloodknot, in um, a later show called Shifting Sands, in the following series, Bloodknot uses that line again. He mentions there's a little green-eyed idol to the north of Kathmandu. Bloodknot is such a wonderful character. He, he, I've got a strong argument for him being my favourite character because because he's he's so wonderful at undermining the British establishment. And it's not we do there's a little bit too much uh, of a strain in 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 uh, British humour of. 
oh, these daft toffs, aren't they adorable? And like, no, they're the reason why the Empire existed and we shouldn't be proud of them. But he's... There's something about the way that Milligan is skewering officer class with Bloodnock and then making it ridiculous that's so... Yes. It's it's both a laser-guided missile and because Bloodnock's life is such a mess, gives him license to do such silly jokes. <laughs> um, there's there's one not in this. There's, it's a desert-based one where um, Seagoon is asked where they are, and they're oh, we're by a wadi. Uh, what's the wadi called? Oh, it's the wadi de El Yawant. And then mm. um, Bloodnock answers the phone, going, "Yes, Major Bloodnock, what the hell you want?" <laughs> it's, it's, it's. I mean, it's this. It's such a creaking pun. Oh yeah, but but delivered with such skill. Of, often the often bad puns and bad jokes, bad gags are, are saved by the delivery of these guys. Particularly, Seekum yes. uh, is fantastic at giving of a bad pun with gusto. You know. We, we right at the beginning of the conversation we mentioned Bloodnock and his um his proclivities um <laughs> I love the bit I love the bit when he's he's sending off for some art studies <laughs> yes dear sirs I am a keen art student over the age of twenty one please forward me. Your selection of continental art studies <laughs> in the plain wrapper. Hey, by the way, Bloodnock is riddled, isn't he? Let's face it. God, yes, he re- he re- he really is. <laughs> um, I, I mentioned about the Wages of Fear, which was a two and a half hour film, black and white in French and a bit of English. Mm-hmm. That's not gonna that's not gonna sell it to many people. If, if you want to see a more family friendly or, or audience friendly or contemporary version of The Wages of Fear, seek out the film Sorcerer. It's from 1977, came out in summer 1977. Unfortunately, it came out in summer of 1977, so it didn't do very well. It was rather overshadowed by another film that came out summer 1977. Uh, But that's the same story, essentially, but just updated. So Ben, is there there anything we've missed? Is there anything that you you, you want to throw in before I start wrapping up? There's another little joke that certainly is worth saying of uh, where they say uh, World War Two book now for World War Three, yes. which is so again it's a it's such a simple joke and it is full of fatalism particularly when 1956 where there's a lot of nuclear fear going around mm-hmm. and the f- the fact that they do it's it, a, another great you can only do this on the radio joke where they put the tree on a truck. But when they the they they ring up they ring up the truck by dialing its number plate, and Neddy answers the phone by going uh, hello World War Three speaking. Mm-hmm. This th- just managing to compact so much into that singularity is remarkable. Yeah, you talk about conte- contemporaneous worries or fears for a, a third world war around this time and into the sixties. Um, we mentioned Neville Shute, who wrote Town Called Alice right at the beginning. Mm-hmm. He also wrote a book called On the Beach, um, which is set yes. in Australia. And that is about um, people in Australia waiting for the fallout from a nuclear war to reach them. Uh, a very bleak, a very bleak book that I read when I was a teenager. Just rather nicely, neatly sort of uh, brings us back to where we came in, I think. 
talking yeah. about Neville Shoot. Um, so Ben, uh, you, you obviously you're a comedian, you're stand up, you're a podcaster as well. So um, do, you, do you want to do sort of a plug for, for Worst Foot Forward and, and whatnot? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, along with my co-host, uh, Barry McStay, who is an actor and a playwright, uh, I host a podcast called Worst Foot Forward, which is a celebration of heroic failure. Uh, each week we get a guest on the show and we talk about the world's worst something. So we've had episodes about the world's worst pirate, the worst experiment, the worst <laughs> smell, the worst door, even the worst vending machine, which a Patreon donor suggested we thought was going to be impossible. And then we discovered some really weird things in Japan. In Japan, I was just going to say. But also vending machines in ancient Rome. And huh? uh, yeah, so we're, if you enjoy QI and Room 101, you'll like us. Yeah. Uh, we've had some tremendous guests on the show, all sorts of comedians um, and also burlesque dancers, magicians, chefs, scientists. So do um, do have a listen to that. Hey, um, uh, worst prime minister? You have to keep updating <laughs> that one. <laughs> yes, uh, that was recorded a couple of years ago <laughs> and we certainly will have to reappraise it. <laughs> And um, hey, well, I mean, if you if you have any London-based listeners, uh, please do come and check out the comedy clubs that I run. One is called Good Ship Comedy, and uh, can be found in both Holloway Road and West Norwood. And the other one is called Laugh Train Home, which is in Battersea. Absolutely, and I will put details of all this uh, in the show notes. And uh, so, Ben, listen, it's been fantastic. It's been, you know, we've we've, we've really <laughs> we've we've gone all over the shop and we've talked about a hell of a lot and we've touched on so many topics but it's been really really enjoyable it mate it's been lovely to be able to nerd out to this with someone who <laughs> understands this this honestly sort of felt like a goon shows anonymous group and i would <laughs> i would like to get together with you and other like-minded friends once a week just to get this off my chest so i don't have to bore my wife to tears thanks again to ben uh, if you could please uh, rate and review the podcast on apple Podcasts, that would be fantastic if you want to further promote the show please uh, construct some sort of sandwich board with the goon pod logo printed on and if you could walk around your town center for a couple of hours every saturday and sunday afternoon that would be fantastic as well I'd really appreciate it i can't pay you but rest assured my gratitude would know no bounds anyway Thanks for listening. I will see you next time. Take care. Bye.